Take a few moments to stand up, step out, turn around, shake a hand, welcome those around you to our service this morning. so here we are in a whole new year with all new temperatures. <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be like this. Uh, there weren't too many of you come through those doors, though, with nice warm hands like they were 
a few weeks ago. Hands were cold and, uh, oh well. Good to have you with us. Thank you for coming. We're uh, going to have a great morning, I'm sure. Uh, we certainly are looking for what God has in store for each of us. A couple of things to mention as far as uh, things we need to be praying for. Um, please keep uh, the Claudia Pritchard family in prayer. Claudia's sister went home to be with the Lord this past Friday. Uh, and so I know they would greatly appreciate uh, your prayers on their behalf. It was good to see Steve uh, as he's sitting at the keyboard, not ready to play, but just trying to rest his foot. Uh, as you know, Steve fell on a, on a hunting trip and, and broke his right ankle. But he's back, and we're glad to have him back. Also, keep Judy Elphick in prayer. We continue to mention her name because of all the things that are taking place. She had a fall as well and broke her upper right arm, um, as well as her breathing issues. So uh, please keep uh, Judy in prayer and, and all the rest of the folks that we have listed on our sheet. Father, we're coming before you this morning because you have asked us to. You, Lord, have ask us to pray. You have instructed us to pray. You have commanded us to pray without ceasing. And so, Father, a big part of the life of Christians is coming before the throne of grace. And so, Father, we do with boldness and confidence, knowing, Father, that you hear us, knowing that, Father, all that comes out of our mouths uh, come before you, and we're thankful for that, that, uh, that through Jesus we can come into your very presence. And so, Father, we do this morning, and we thank you so much for the warmth of this church, Father, for the warmth of the hearts of people, uh, for love and support and family. Father, for these things, we thank you. It's good to be a part of a, a body, the body of Christ. It's good, Father, to be able to call Word of Life Chapel our home. Uh, and so we're thankful that we have been allowed another morning uh, to be able to come and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, our desire, our great hope this morning is that you might be honored and glorified in everything that we do. Father, it's not about us, but it is all about you. And so we have come, Lord, to bring glory to you, to praise you. And we pray, Father, that our worship might be acceptable in your sight. Father, we have many who are struggling in a physical way right now. Father, we do pray for Claudia and her family that you might give a double portion of your grace. Uh, Father, we know that this was a very difficult time in losing a sister, a loved one. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you might supply the comfort and peace that, that you're in which you alone are able. We think of Steve, Father. We're thankful that he's able to get up and around and, and get to work. Father, we pray that you would heal him quickly and that the doctor appointment this week might go very well, that he might be able to move into a walking cast. And so we're praying, Father, for a very speedy recovery and Father, for Judy, Lord, it just seems as though um, she just can't get out from under 
all of these uh, issues that cause her to struggle. Um, we pray that you would heal the fractured uh, right arm. Uh, Father, we know, however, that the breathing is not something that really is going to get much better. And so we pray for her and her spirits. Father, we know she becomes discouraged. And uh, Father, we understand that. Uh, we understand that. But Father, we pray that uh, you might lift her up, that she might find her strength in you. Father, we're thankful for the time of year that we've just come through. Uh, Father, we have celebrated the birth of, of Jesus, and we're thankful, Lord, that he has come into our world. The word did become flesh and did dwell among us. And so, Father, this morning as we as we celebrate the birth, we celebrate his life, we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord. But Father, help us to acknowledge the fact that, Father, it's what Jesus did for us that brings us life. It's what Jesus did for us that brings to us the ability to be able to live according to the scriptures. We're thankful, Lord, that You've given to us your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you've instructed us clearly. And I pray this morning that as we look at the gospel, Father, the good news that was proclaimed and presented to the shepherds that night. Father, as we look at the gospel, help us to clearly understand what it is and what it does. Father, we are a thankful people thankful to be here, thankful to be alive, thankful, Lord, to know you, thankful that you have given us a wonderful, the wonderful promise of, of a future uh, in your very presence forever and ever and ever. And so, Father, as we stand before you this morning, we stand with a great assurance of knowing you, knowing that we are in a right relationship with you through Jesus, our mediator. But Father, if there's one that never has come to that place of trusting Jesus alone for salvation, that today might be that day. And Father, they might acknowledge the fact that they have fallen short. They have sinned against you. And Father, they need to have their sins forgiven and acknowledge that it is only through the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. So use our time this morning, Father, to bring honor to yourself. Remove the distractions now from the world. Father, we know there are many. We know, Father, we come through these doors with much baggage, many things on our hearts and our minds. But I pray that, Father, we might be able to focus on what you have in store for us in this next hour. Father, we invite you to come. Come into each heart. Come into our minds. And Father, move in that mysterious way to change us and conform us to the image of your dear Son. We pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Hymn number 40. Uh, let's sing hymn number 40.
To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus, the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing this last verse. Then those in junior church can be dismissed. Great thing he had taught us, great things he had done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Have you ever wondered what causes men, what causes women to give up everything and follow Christ? On the night when the angels came to the shepherds and the angels proclaimed the good news, the Bible says they left to go to the town of David. One of the commentators I was reading, they asked the question, what happened to the sheep? I mean, what happened to their duties out there in the field that night? Did he just abandon everything and just go? Well, we don't know what exactly happened, but they just left. What causes someone like a Don Chubb to leave family, 
to leave friends, to leave their country, and go to a place in Mexico to spread the gospel. What causes someone like the Apostle Paul to give up everything and become a follower of Jesus Christ? Today we want to answer this question. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel do to us when we really grasp what it means? What does the gospel do? This morning we start a new sermon series in the book of Romans. It's been a while since we've looked at Romans, and we're not going to get all the way through it. There's 16 chapters. Um, I was considering doing what John Piper, who is a great pastor and theologian, had done years ago. He took eight years, <laughs> eight years and 225 sermons to complete the book. You know, I thought, what we'll do this morning is we'll start, and by the time I get finished, it'll probably be time to retire. We'll plan on 225 sermons that will take us through the next eight years, and by then, if I'm still alive, um, I'll just phase off the scene. No, that's not going to quite work. 200, you know, they tell you, <laughs> you know, in classes that, you know, people's attention, it's hard to keep people's attention. Did you know that? It's not easy to keep people's attention for even a half an hour. And so what you try to do is you try to break things up and add variety, even in sermon series. So you take a four-week series or a six-week series or an eight-week series, and then you stop and you move on to something different. Well, we're going to take nine weeks. We're going to go through the end of February, and we're only going to cover the first eight chapters. And my plan is this, that sometime in the future... I don't know when that's going to be. Maybe we go to January 2017, and we start in chapter 9, and we work our way through the end. I don't know. But for now, we're going to take the next nine weeks and look at Romans 1 through 8. Taking a chapter at a time and two sermons in chapter 8. So with all of that in mind, <laughs> would you turn in your Bibles to Romans Look at Romans chapter 1. The question that I raised this morning is, what does the gospel do? What does it do to men and women? What, does this, what did it do to Paul to cause him to give up everything to follow Jesus? And by the way, if you're a Christian, you are a follower of Christ. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel do? Verse 1, Paul, he identifies himself as the writer of this book, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness 
was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are three words in these four verses, and they all begin with the letter S. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. This is an expression of his full commitment to Christ. He is master, and I am servant. He says that he's also set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart. In other words, his life mission is the preaching of the gospel. I am a servant of Jesus. I am fully devoted to him. And I am set apart. In other words, my life mission is to preach the gospel. And then we have the word in verse 3, son. It speaks of Jesus who had an earthly life, was a descendant of David. But it also speaks of the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power. We have the incarnation in the opening introduction of Paul. That Jesus Christ was in fact the God man. He had an earthly life, but he was also God. God in flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We came through Christmas. The incarnation when God came into our world. But he also mentions that he died and he rose again. What a powerful introduction to this book that John Piper calls the greatest letter ever written. The greatest letter that's ever been written. Paul was not always Paul. As a matter of fact, there was a time when his name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. He was not always a follower of Christ. There was a time when Saul of Tarsus was killing the followers of Christ. But he gave up all of that, his previous life, to become a follower of Christ. He was sold out to Jesus. He dedicated his whole life to the preaching of the gospel. Down in verse 9, it speaks of that, I believe, in the King James, where it says that, that he with his whole heart preached the gospel. He was completely surrendered to the will of God. What changes someone from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the apostle? What did the gospel do to bring Paul to this place? Well, point number one is this. The gospel creates an obligation. One of the things the gospel does is it creates an obligation. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. When the gospel gets a hold of someone, as the gospel got a hold of the apostle Paul, you feel a sense of, of obligation that begins to grow inside of you. 
a sense of obligation that, that is moving you to action, compelling you to give it all up for the gospel's sake. So who is Paul obligated to? Well, in the early verses, as we read, uh, his first obligation was to Christ. He felt an obligation to Jesus Christ. Now in Acts chapter 9, don't turn there, but in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul was on his uh, journey to a place called Damascus. And at this point, he's not Paul. At this point, he's Saul of Tarsus. And as I said, Saul of Tarsus was not a follower of Christ. He was persecuting followers of Christ. And that's exactly what he was going to do when he got to Damascus. He was going to go to Damascus, the city, and persecute Christians. It says in Acts 9 that on his way, he was, quote, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was furious at the followers of Christ. He was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was going to Damascus for one reason, and one reason alone, to start persecuting and killing those Christians. But then, and again I quote from Acts 9, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now you remember the story of the shepherds out in the field. We looked at that on Christmas morning, the Christmas service. The angel comes and uh, proclaims the good news, and the Bible says that this, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Well, in Acts 9, it says that as Paul, as Saul, is on his way to Damascus, a light from heaven flashed around him. Again, the glory of God was there. It was this shining bright light that is indescribable. Can't put those things in words. And then he hears this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? From this flash of light comes these words, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul understood that there was some presence of deity. I mean, he got that. He understood this bright light. And so he says, in return, he says, who are you, Lord? And the reply was, I am Jesus. And there on that road to Damascus, Saul was converted. There on that road to Damascus, Saul became the Apostle Paul. There on that road to Damascus, Saul had a complete change of heart and he felt an obligation to Jesus he felt sold out and committed to this one who has just saved him by grace and through faith I wonder how obligated we feel toward Jesus because you see, you were saved the same way Saul was saved. Well, maybe you didn't see the bright light. Maybe you didn't hear the voice. But you were saved by grace and through faith. 
That's the way everybody's saved. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. And he felt a huge obligation for Jesus Christ who died on his behalf. But he also felt obligated to people. And that's what he says in verse 14. I, I'm obligated. He says, I'm obligated to the Greeks, the non-Greeks, the wise, the foolish. I believe what he's saying is, I'm obligated to, the, to everyone. I'm obligated to the old and young, the rich, the poor, the men and women, slave and free. I'm obligated to people. Because Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, he understood that there's only one way for hearts to be changed, and that's through the gospel. And he, he understood that, that he had to proclaim this gospel. He set apart for the gospel of God in verse 1. This is his life's work now. The same gospel that came to him that day. He must take it to others. Again, I wonder how obligated we feel to people. How obligated do we feel to those who we work with, to those who we go to school with, to those who we live next to? Do we feel an obligation to other people who do not know the same Jesus that we know? So the gospel, it creates an obligation. That's what it does to people. Once you, once you understand this gospel that is the hope of the world, it creates an obligation to Jesus and it creates an obligation in us to other people. But it does something else, Paul says in verse 15. He also says that the gospel produces an eagerness. It produces an eagerness. Verse 15, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Paul says, I, I, I can't wait to preach to you Romans. I, 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 I've got to tell someone. and I can't wait. I, I've got to tell them right now. You see, we didn't read the verses earlier on, uh, but he speaks of wanting to come to Rome. And something stood in his way and he wasn't able to get there. And, and, and so he says, I, I was so eager to come to you. I was so eager to come to Rome and, and preach the gospel to you. When you get good news, you're eager to share it, aren't you? Some of you get, you know, you get good news, whatever that good news might be. Um, you passed the class. You got an A on your test. Uh, you just found out that you're pregnant. Uh, just got my driver's license. Got a promotion. You got a raise. And you, you're anxious. You, you want to go home and tell someone. It's good news. There's an eagerness. You can't wait. This is how Paul felt. He says, I'm eager to preach this gospel to those of you who are at Rome. Why such eagerness? 
Why was Paul so eager? Why did he feel as though, ah, you know what, when I get there, I get there. Why was Paul so eager to get to the Romans, to get to Rome and be able to preach the gospel to them? Because Paul understood something. Paul understood that man has a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Paul understood that man has a problem. Paul understood that man is lost in sin. He writes of that a little bit later in this book. He writes, for example, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Later on in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Paul understood that man has a problem. And this sin that everyone is involved in separates man from God. There's a separation between man and God, and it's sin that separates. And the greatest need of mankind is the forgiveness of sins in order that man might be right with God. And one of the great themes that runs through this book is the righteousness of God that comes to the gospel. There is a righteousness that comes through faith and not by the law. There is a rightness. Men need to be right with God. But they're not right with God as they're born into this world. The Bible says we've sinned by nature and by practice. And so there's a separation. Man is at enmity with God. And so there's this great gap between God and man, and it's sin that separates. And Paul understood that. And Paul understood that the wages of sin is death. And so he was eager. He even speaks in verse 18 of the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. Paul didn't say, listen, there's a wrath of God that's coming. You know, we often think of God's wrath as something future. And it is that. We studied that in the book of Revelation. We know that during the great tribulation period, there's going to be the wrath of God unleashed against mankind. But Paul doesn't say the wrath of God is in the end times. Paul says the wrath of God is... Right now, it's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. It's not limited to the future. And as you go down through chapter 1, it speaks of God giving them over and giving them over and giving them over. In other words, he's allowing sin to just run its course as a way of judging people. One of the biggest sins that he lists here and it's actually one that's singled out is homosexuality. But it's not just that in this text. For Paul says down in verse 20, uh, 29, he gives us a whole list. Uh, he says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossipers and slanders and God-haters and insolent arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They 
disobey their parents. <laughs> you see, this is a huge list. Not an exclusive list, but a list of sin that deserves the wrath of God, that separates man from God himself. And the wrath of God is being revealed. We read several places in uh, the book of John. Let me just read a couple of them. In John chapter uh, 3 and verse 18, it says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Already people stand condemned. And later on in John chapter 3 and verse 36, it says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, mankind is under the wrath of God because of sin, because of godlessness, because of wickedness. And Paul understood that. That's why he was so, so eager to go and preach the gospel. That the men in Rome, the ladies in Rome, the children in Rome might be offered the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Now there's a big long word, and it's the word propitiation. And um, when we get to the text, I believe it's in Romans 3, uh, we're going to take a look at propitiation. Um, actually, the, um, in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 2, it, it mentions propitiation in the King James, but uh, the NIV changed it to atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know what propitiation is? It's a word that means satisfaction. It's a word that means satisfaction. You see, the Bible says that God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men. God's wrath. But when Jesus died on the cross as the atoning sacrifice, Jesus became sin for man. He became a curse on behalf of man. Because he died for the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why, God, why have you abandoned me? Why did God have to abandon his son? Because at that moment, he was bearing the sins of the world. And he was bearing the wrath of his father. So that the wrath of God might be satisfied in the death of Jesus. So that he might be able to save sinners. Propitiation simply means that God was satisfied with the work of Jesus on the cross. He was completely satisfied. That Jesus bore the sins of the world, completely satisfied. And now his wrath can be turned away from us because it was already turned against his son. Well, we'll look a little bit further at that word propitiation. But Paul understood that wrath remains on men. Paul understood the great problem that man has. A sin problem. And that the gospel is the only cure. The gospel is the only remedy. The gospel is the only solution 
to the problem in which man has. That's why Paul was so eager. Paul said, I was, I, I, I'm so eager to come to you in Rome to preach the gospel. Because you in Rome, you need to hear the good news. You need to understand that the forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus Christ alone. What does the gospel do? It creates an obligation to Jesus and others, but it also creates an eagerness to want to preach it to others. It does something else, however. The gospel instills pride. Look at verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, someone said that, you know, this was an understatement, uh, that Paul was not only not ashamed, but here he's making a deliberate understatement, emphasizing the complete opposite, and that is that he was proud of the gospel. I'm not just not ashamed of the gospel, but I am so proud of this gospel. And the reason it states that he's proud and not ashamed is because it is the power of God. The word's dunamis. We get our word dynamite. There's a power, there's a force, there's an explosive force in the gospel. Paul knows something. He knows that when he preaches this gospel, that the Spirit of God is at work. Paul knows that when he opens his lips and opens his mouth, and the gospel is proclaimed, that that's when the Spirit of God begins to work. Paul knows that there's power in this gospel, that the Spirit of God is at work, and God's power is unleashed, and, and lives are transformed as a result. And it's not just Paul. It's anyone who speaks the gospel. It's not just Paul. It's you at your place of work when you share the good news. There's a power that's unleashed. That's when the Spirit of God is at work. God is always working through His Word. Always working through His Word. And sometimes that Word comes from our lips. And God is at work. And Paul understood that. That there's power in this Gospel. Because the result is that it brings salvation to everyone who believes. There's salvation to everyone who believes. Back in Romans chapter 10, let me read a couple of verses, and uh, we're not going to get to these until 2017. Well, I don't know when, when we're going to get to chapter 10, but let me just uh, uh, give you a taste of, of what uh, we might be doing in 2017. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 says this, How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now there's an order to this. And if you jump down to verse 17, it says this, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Paul understands something, that this salvation that he speaks of here in Romans 1, this salvation begins with a preacher. It begins with a teacher. It begins with a Christian. 
who is willing to share the gospel, willing to share the good news. It begins there. And when that Christian, when that believer shares that good news with others, the power of God is released and the power of God is at work bringing salvation to those who believe. Now man's part is the belief part, right? Our part is to believe. God does everything else. God does everything else. Our part is to believe. That's man's part. That's why in John chapter 3 and verse 16 it says, For God, he, he so loved the world. He didn't just love the world, but God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, that's man's part. Our part is to believe. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to, to become children of God's. Now you ran down under your, uh, you ran downstairs on Christmas morning, and there under your tree were all these different nicely wrapped gifts. And a couple of them had your name on, a couple had, you know, your spouse's name, or, you know, your children's name, or whoever's name. And you looked under that tree, and there was that gift. And it had your name on it. It was your gift. All wrapped very nicely, had a little bow on the top. And you couldn't wait. Just rip that paper off and see what was inside. See, what God does, he offers us the gift of salvation. But the Bible says in Romans 1, we have to receive it and believe it. We have to accept that gift that God is offering and unwrap it. And we discover that it's Jesus who saves the gospel instilled pride in Paul. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? He said, why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Paul said, when I preach the gospel, I know the Spirit of God is at work. I know there's a power, there's a dynamic, there's something going on. The Spirit of God is convicting of sin, drawing to Jesus. When I preach the gospel, but it begins with me. When I preach the gospel, there's a power going on, and it brings salvation to that person who believes it. It brings salvation to everyone who believes I trust this morning that, that you have done your part. You see, God has done everything else. God has done everything else. God has sent his son into the world. The God-man. Jesus lived a perfect life as no other man could live. And there on the cross, the Bible says he died. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. But he did it because he loved us. He did it because he knew that this was the only way of salvation. He was buried, but the third day the Bible says he 
was resurrected. It's trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. It's believing that that's where I should have died. I should have died in his stead, but he died for me. It's believing that he was a sacrifice on my behalf. He was wounded for me. He bled for me. And when he did, God was satisfied. God looked down upon his son and said, it's finished. Jesus cried those words, did he not? It is finished. It is finished. Nothing else needs to be done. God did all of that for us. And the only thing he asked of us is to believe. Believe that Jesus died for you. The gospel does one more thing. According to my outline, it does, does a whole lot more. But according to my outline, it does one more thing. It brings true life. In verse 17, it says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As I said, one of the great themes of Paul is the righteousness of God that comes by faith and not by the law. And he'll get into that in the next few chapters. Because many believed that law brought righteousness. Law didn't bring righteousness. Faith brings righteousness. And that's Paul's argument. That the righteousness of God is now revealed, and it's a righteousness that comes by faith, and only by faith. And then he says this, the righteous will then live by faith. Now, on the surface, uh, you know what that means. But let me say what I think it means, and it's not on the surface. Um, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is quoting from the book of Habakkuk. He quotes it twice. He quotes the same uh, phrase, the righteous will live by faith, over in Galatians chapter 3. Over in Galatians 3, uh, and if you know anything about the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is all about righteousness by faith and not law. Paul is, 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 is arguing that law does not bring righteousness, but faith brings righteousness, a true standing and rightness with God. So Paul is showing that one is not justified by law, but is justified by faith when he quotes it over in Galatians 3.11. Here, on the surface, it would indicate that the person who's righteous will then live by faith. That's what it says, right? And I have no argument with that. We all should live by faith. We ought to be people who live by faith. But is that what Paul means here? You see, let me give you what I believe this means. The one who is righteous, by virtue of his faith, will live. Let me say that again. The one who is righteous by virtue or because of his faith, he will then live. 
Now that's saying something different than what's on the surface. The reason I say that is, is because as I said over in Galatians, the context is salvation, justification. Here, the context is the same. Paul is dealing with salvation, the gospel of God. Paul will later in this book, he'll get to the area of putting this into practice. That's what Paul's letters often do. He starts out in the beginning with doctrine, then he moves to practice. Here's what you need to believe, now live it out. We're not there yet in chapter 1. We're not there yet. Paul's not dealing with practice, how to live. He's dealing with doctrine. And so I believe what he's saying is that, that, as I quoted, the one who's already righteous because of his faith, by virtue of his faith, he will live. So all of that to say this, here's my point, that through faith we become righteous and we're given true life, eternal life. I believe what this verse is saying is the righteous by virtue of their faith are given eternal life, true life, abundant life. You know, someone who's not a Christian is really not living because real life, the abundant life, eternal life. It comes as a result of a relationship with God through Christ. That's what I believe he's saying. The righteous, by virtue of his faith in Jesus, he can really live now. I'm going to give him an abundant life. I'm going to give him a life filled with peace and joy. A a life that goes on and on. A life that continues. A life that's perpetual. It's endless. It's lasting. It's permanent. All through a relationship with Jesus. What does the gospel do? It does all of these things plus much more. This is why on the first Sunday of January and three other months of the year, we come to this table. We come to this table because of what the gospel is. We come to this table because of what the gospel has done. The gospel has brought us life, true life, abundant life, eternal life. And so when we come, we come to celebrate, to celebrate what Jesus has done, to remember what he has done. And I hope that a few of the things we said Reminded you of that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Hymn number 288, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You remember the blind man, the story? He said, I don't know a lot, but you know what I do know? I know there was a time when I was blind, and now I can see. That's something we can say this morning. We were blind in a spiritual sense, but now we can see. We are living the true life. We're living the abundant life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Let's stand. You need a little bit of a break before we uh, pass the bread in the cup. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
Amazing grace, sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. <coughs> How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed Through many tortures, toils, and snares Have already come His grace hath brought safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there, sun years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days sing God's praise than when we first begun. Thank you. You may be seated. In just a moment, I'm going to invite the men to come and join me at the front of the church. And when they do, uh, they'll be given trays of bread and, and uh, cups of grape juice. And they'll pass these out to all of you. I know most of you, maybe all of you, you've experienced this before, but the bread represents the body of Jesus. Uh, the bread represents the body that was broken and was given on the cross. The cup, we have grape juice, and it represents his blood. The blood that we spoke of that cleanses us from all sin. Uh, the blood that is able to wash us as white as snow. In a moment, the men will pass the trays to you. Uh, you'll take a bread cube and you'll take a cup. Please hold these until everyone has been served. The men will come back to the front, they'll join me at the front, and then we'll eat together and we'll drink together. As the founding pastor of the church used to say, uh, it reminds us that we are part of the body of Christ. Uh, it reminds us that we're all a big, big family, and we do it all together. So, I'll ask that you men, if you would join me at the front of the church. <clears throat> we begin with a bread. As I stated, the bread represents the body of Jesus that hung on the cross, uh, the body that was broken for us so that we in turn might have eternal life.
Father, we're thankful this morning for that body, the body, Lord, that was in fact man so that it could die. We're thankful, Lord, that God, you became flesh and allowed your son to go to the old rugged cross. Father, we thank you for what took place on that day. We thank you, Lord, that by his wounds, Lord, we are healed. We are healed of our sins. And so we thank you again this morning for your son and his finished work there on Calvary's Hill. In Jesus' name, amen. Savior, I come, quiet my soul, remember, redemption's hell where your blood was spilled for my bread represents the body of our Lord. Let's eat together.
And again, Father, our hearts are filled with joy because of the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, as horrible as blood sounds spilling out upon the earth, the Bible says it was because of that blood that we are washed. And Father, that is the only way for sins to be forgiven. And so we're thankful once again that Jesus willingly laid down his life for his friends. Amen. Amen. Okay. As Jesus was reclining at the table, he looked to his disciples and said, Drink ye all of it. Let's drink together. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for saving us from our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. As the men are making their way to the pews, if you would stand with me and turn to hymn number 287. Hymn number 287, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. A good song of witness as we close this morning. My faith has found a resting place not in device nor creed. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves, ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul come to him, he'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough, and that he died for me. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. Argument. <laughs> I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My great physician heals the sick. Lost he came to save. For me his precious blood. For me his life he gave. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Father, this is our song of witness. Father, this says it all. And we're thankful, Lord, that we don't have to argue the gospel. Father, we don't have to debate it. Father, the Bible states it, and that's enough, knowing that Jesus died, and he died for me. Father, take your word this morning, and I do pray, if there is one who has never trusted you, never believed in Jesus for his salvation, that, Father, you would use your spirit as you continue to work through the seed that has been planted. Father, again, we thank you and praise you today. For the salvation, which is ours through Jesus alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.